Welcome to the Sandwich Parenting Podcast. I am your host, Sherry Yuen Hunter. Here, we speak with amazing guests to make the world a better place by helping people heal from intergenerational trauma. Sandwich parents are in between the way we got parented and the way we now want to parent our children. Okay, so I'm just going to introduce my next guest who I'm very excited to speak with today because I've heard so much wonderful comments about her and her work. She's fluent in English and Mandarin and Dr. Carissa Ning is a psychologist in Singapore. She's worked with individuals from as young as four years old and all the way to their 70s, helping them cope with life struggles. Carissa believes in journeying with her clients with the help of very personalized diagnostics and a variety of therapeutic techniques that include CBT, acceptance and commitment theory, a therapy, excuse me, schema therapy, inner child work, EMDR therapy, and lots of other neuropsychological techniques. She currently lives in Singapore, but has studied in lots of different places for all of her many degrees. So hello and welcome, Carissa. I'm so glad to see you. Hello. Uh, good morning from Singapore. <laughs> yes. Ah, nice, warm, sunny Singapore. Better than wintering Toronto. <laughs> oh, um, when it's hot here. <laughs> we don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference. So I always like to start off asking people, what is your origin story? Why do you do this work? It's very important work, but I'm curious as to what drives you to do this. Well, I think that quite a few different factors while growing up really did help cement this. Mm. I think it started out as early as when my dad sort of planted the idea in me that maybe some form of therapeutic work is good to consider. And I think that's very telling uh, because I think he shared this with me back when I was in my teens, I think really early on, 12 or 13. And he said something that was, even till today, I it really stands out to me, which is that more and more people will need mental health support. And that was quite mind-boggling. That was, I don't know, in my 30s now, 10, 15 years ago. You know, my dad was able to uh, recognize that. And I, of course, as a teenager, just brushed it off. But growing up uh, over the years, I realized, yeah, there's some truth to it. You know, I'm actually seeing it today. It, it is, there is high demand, absolutely high demand. And I do wonder if things are already happening on the ground years ago that we never really picked it up. But only now do we actually see the actual surge in demand. Of course, I think this really does uh, of course, the other part of my life history that I think does uh, relate to what you are doing, Sherry, is that I was pretty much raised by my grandmother during the first few years of my wow. life. Okay. So uh, my parents would be typical Asian parenting, right? Mm-hmm. Grandma or grandpa steps in, parents are off working and I see them only on the weekends. So uh, my grandmother struggled with mental health. So I grew up witnessing, but without understanding what is going on. And it's only, you know, years later when I sort of decided to dabble into psychology and then, you know, I wanted to actually work with the elderly first. So, uh, of course, all driven by my experience with my grandmother. Then, so volunteer work, you know, when I was in London, I did lots of that. I helped hang out with a lot of individuals with dementia. And afterwards, you know, further training in psychology and in mental health, literally seeing what my dad is talking about. More and more people with anxiety, depression, some are sort of what you call unspecified or, you know, yes. generalized yes. anxiety. Yes, right? yes. So many of them and a variety of reasons and factors 
But it was during my uh, doctorate training, I was exposed to trauma work. And that's when a lot of things begin to make sense. Yeah. Those fall in, you know, why people, you know, having so emotionally dysregulated. Why are they they so anxious? You know, it's just, you know, in Singapore, we have a term, kiasu or kiasu parents. Yes, (laughs) kiasu is the other one. Uh, To be afraid to lose or to be afraid to die, you know, and of course, death here means not necessarily the physical death but sort of being hopeless, uh, losing all opportunities. Yes, and it's everywhere, it's prevalent. So yeah, it pretty much just made me decide that, you know, this is for me and I'm I'm just going to commit down to this path. And that's actually very forward thinking of your dad, because I would imagine that most Asians 10, you know, years ago, 15 years ago, however long this was, you know, we tend to not want to admit that there are mental health issues. So that's very, very forward thinking of your dad to say, like, Mm -hmm. this is an issue and that you can make a difference in this space. And on top of that, you have an experience with your grandmother, like all those pieces. It makes it very different because you come across as somebody who really, really, really gets it. It's not just academic studies that you have. You have all of those things, but you have lived experience as well. Yeah. And and I think that's why uh, to today, I do have a soft spot working with individuals of a certain age range. Of course, uh, through my experience, I'm sort of moving more and more towards moms. <laughs> I think it's in part, maybe even my own life's journey, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a mom myself, so I completely empathize, uh, you know, how neurotic we can get, how uh, paranoid we can get, yeah. uh, and also the best that we can be, you know, when we just put in the effort and we see the, how, how things just magically change. Yeah. Uh- I hear you so much. I feel the same way. I have a soft spot for moms as well. I've sort of landed on working more with with moms in my work as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I completely, completely feel the same way you do, which is, I hear you. I I see you. I totally understand your struggle, you know, and I totally know what it feels like to lose it. Like, I get it. I get it. (laughs) Uh, But it's worth it to do your work. It's worth it to do the work. So I have a question for you, and it could be as specific as Singapore or just in general, but why do you think there are so many people who suffer from depression or anxiety, or as you said, like this sort of generalized, you know, anxiety? I think that what I have observed is actually in line with what my father observed 10, 20 years ago. And I want to bring it back to that because I think that things have been bubbling through the years and no support was given or no emphasis was given. That's why the situation on the ground worsened. And it started all the way back when I think uh, things were going really well uh, during, I think, 80s, 90s, maybe. Things were exploding. Uh, you know, We were working towards that quality of life or our parents were working towards the quality of life. Our parents were the first generation of sandwich parenting, isn't it? They were the very first. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah. And so I think they, you know, they had to walk that path without any guidance. And there was no mental health to support them. So, you know, they they struggled with their own parenting woes. They struggled with their own fears. And uh, there there were multiple, multiple financial crashes during that time. Mm -hmm. uh, Wars as well. So they went through so much. They never figured out why, but it is also from that generation that began to start to develop some of the techniques that we are using today. But I think the problem is that while for some of the Western countries that we might have begin to improve, you know, that I mean, some Western cultures tend to be more innovative and more 
more daring to try new things. Uh, and I think that that's why you know more help, more progress was made in the health of uh, in the mental health field. But in Singapore, uh, we don't. We're not that courageous. We don't. You know, we are more conservative. They're very <laughs> conservative. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we've only reached this stage of liberalism of you know being willing to try things or even see things from a different perspective. Just five years ago, you know, we're, we're not that far mm. off. Mm. Yeah. I think before that, it was there, but it did not gain momentum. You know, today in Singapore, trauma, mental health. I mean, that's just buzzwords that's being dropped everywhere. Yeah. And I feel that it's still continuing the anxiety, in part because uh, it's a pressure cooker. Lots yeah. of expectations. There are so many. When you think about a Singaporean parent and their kids, mm-hmm. the expectations on how they should treat the elder, how they should behave, what their career should be like, how they should dress, how they should mm-hmm. look, how their children should behave. The amount of pressures that come down on parents in Singapore, the education system. Wow, the education system. It's so much. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And it is not exactly a system that we dare to deviate, you know. There was a recent news article (laughs) uh, where the government has decided to remove mid-year examinations. You you, You would assume parents would be, you know, relieved, but no, parents are more anxious. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a deviation from the norm. It's deviation from the established structure of how to track progress or how we understand. And so now parents are afraid, you know. They're like, how do I make my kid better? <laughs> yes. How do I know what's going on? Right. <laughs> and I, I think that it's also the fact that many parents, many individuals are not very self-aware of what they're going through. They, they know they're upset. They know that they're unhappy, but they don't, they're not able to understand why. They can't understand what's driving their behaviors. And I don't think that there is, for quite some time, there's really no space in our culture or maybe even elsewhere to have that kind of safe space to talk to your friends and discuss such aspects. Sadly, I think uh, ridiculment uh, of such reflection still continues. Agreed. You know, and, and that's why mental health problems exist, you know, if, if you can't have a safe space, you can't share, you bottle up, threat response continues to work, then naturally the anxiety doesn't go away or it worsens actually. So I agree. Yeah. I agree because they end up getting gaslit in some ways, right? Like, oh, yes. it's not that bad or, oh, just move on. And if you don't process it, it stays trapped inside and it gets worse, so it's easy to trigger. Like it's just, yeah. it's there. It's an open gaping wound, right? Yes, yes. So you deal with a lot of different modalities, and this has always been one of my questions. You know, why are there so many different modalities like inner child work, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, you know, somatic work? There's so many different types of things. How does someone even know? what they should be doing or how they should start their healing process. I think that it's important to appreciate how these modalities came about in the first place. They they evolved over time. You know, it started as far back as psychodynamic and then, you know, right, the traditional Freudian lie on the couch and just, yep, (laughs) you know, uh, all 
Uh, yes. And then, you know, over time it moved into uh, CBT and then over time it moved into the second wave of CBT, ACTs, EMDR in a child, uh, even somatic work. They're, they're new. They're like the babies of therapy, they, uh, oh. of therapeutic work. They are very recent. And that's why, I mean, you hear a lot of hype about these modalities. Yes. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, you hear a lot of, you know, ongoing, um, you know, push for the traditional modalities such as CBT. Because CBT has been around for ages. It's been proven to work. Golden standard, and, like a... The yes, gold color. standard. Yeah. It, but the reason it's also upheld is because it's easy for clients to remember. It's very simple, right? Your emotions, your behaviors, your thoughts. Change them yeah. and the rest will change, right? So it's very yeah. simplified. But of course, we have to remember that CBT was developed back in the 60s, 70s. It was just designed for that time, right? Designed for, funnily enough, our parents' generation. Very straightforward simple, just fix this, and then the rest would fall in place. There is actually no understanding of the more complicated aspects of emotions. And of course, the idea that how the body impacts the brain is not uh, understood at that time. So I think the way our society evolved and how with all the challenges, over time, we reached this stage where we are in this new wave of therapy. Um, it's not just EMDR, it's not just inner child. We got like sort of uh, mindfulness, compassionate the- uh, therapy, yes. right? Body work, new ones such as brain spotting. You know, we've got, I we've know, got like, it's, what is that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> brain spotting, right? It's, it's sort of like an offshoot of EMDR. Uh, it ah. does use eye movement with the idea that what your trauma, your pain is held in a particular visual spatial memory of your brain. So classic example, right? If a child has been slapped uh, many times and the child is often looking in fear at this big adult who slapped him and the eyes are perpetually locked in that uh, uh, position, the memory of the trauma is held in that visual space. And so if the individual, you know, if you want to process that, sometimes bringing the eyes back to that position yeah. will help to speed up the progress of healing because yeah. you're actually literally targeting the exact spot in which that memory is being held. So that's a diff- that's an, an alternate sort of theory or perspective on it. Well, I was going to say, and- this is the first time when I kind of casually ask, I, I haven't done any research, but when I'm casually asking about EMDR, it always seems to me like I don't actually get an answer of like what like what it's supposed to do or why it works. But I mm. feel like what you've just described actually makes a little more sense to me because, mm. you know, the body keeps a score. And if your eyes were a certain place at a certain moment when that trauma did get installed in you, then that moment and that feeling of your eye being in that, you know, pointing in that space could actually, I think, help your body get back into that moment in time and, and that feeling. So that that actually kind of makes sense to me now. It is interesting. It's new. Yeah. We're waiting for the research yeah, on yeah, this. Still, of, course. Yeah, uh, of course. EMDR is, of course, a lot uh, has been researched and quite established. Uh, EMDRs, uh, and I think that many, many clients are confused about EMDR. Yeah. It is, it's a long name. <laughs> and the name is difficult to make sense of in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and uh, half the time I have to rattle over the name very quickly just so I can educate my clients. <laughs> and everybody gets, everybody has a confused look on their face. It's like, oh my yeah. gosh, I was talking about it. But 
It's also a bit scary. Yeah, I was so, going to say, it, it, it feels scary to me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm happy. And I think, I think it's a great platform to actually help everyone to understand why EMDR is possibly one, why it's actually still touted as the gold standard for trauma work because it functions, it utilizes a few principles of how the body works to actually achieve that state. So the idea um, and, and the name itself is not creative, but yeah. pretty much breaks down <laughs> the process. <laughs> so um, it's the idea that if we move our eyes, right, ultimately we will be able to feel or we're desensitized to what we are feeling and our brain will sort of repackage the trauma and we'll be able to sort of set it aside in our mind and move on. So, you know, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, this is, this is essentially it. But, you know, and, and the eye movement, right? That's the one thing that's so famous about EMDR, eye movement. You move, your eyes move left and right and everybody's like, what? what is this witchcraft? <laughs> How does it actually work? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I want, I want to bring you know uh, listeners to the to the point that we do this on our own you know every night if you get a good night's rest right and you get into the REM sleep of uh, stage four stage five of sleep your eyes naturally move from left to right it is that is clearly proven and if parents out there don't believe me watch your kids you know parents love to watch their kids sleep. <laughs> Yeah, so, so if your kids are deep into sleep, it's approximately uh, 20 to 40 minutes into their sleep time. Yeah. Watch them. That's around the time they should get into the REM sleep. Your eyes will move, and if, especially if they're dreaming, right? That's the dream state. And what we understand is that the eye movement is basically the brain's way of trying to process the dream. It is the brain's way of saying that, you know, what, what is happening? in my mind right now. Dreaming is so important. There are, of course, schools of thought arguing that, you know, it gives you messages and, and prophecies and stuff. And that, that's another method altogether. <laughs> okay. I'm not on that. But it is important because it helps your brain to make sense, to decide what it needs to keep in, in long-term memory, what it needs to discard for the day. It needs to help you to basically decide what makes sense of what really happened in the day. Sometimes the dreams, if they're really vivid and in many ways irrelevant, chances are it's just your brain trying to pull in data from all your experiences in the day, from the movies you watched and the people you've interacted with to get you to stay asleep because that means you're really tired and your body needs, to, needs that rest. So your brain sort of just draws you in with this Hollywood movie to make sure that you stay asleep. Wait and a minute. Whoa, hang on. That was interesting. So our brain is actually trying to keep us asleep so that we can rest. And so dreaming is part of what keeps us in sleep. Yes. What? Is, and yes, the one of it is to keep you asleep. And the other one, of course, is to make sense what's happening through your day. It is. And, and you know, they did say, right, that the one part of the brain dreams and the other half of the brain goes, what? <laughs> it is. That, that's the whole amazing thing about this um, as you know I, I did I did my training in neuro cognitive neuroscience so yeah I, I, I love this uh, and <laughs> it is a 
fascinating. But the reason, okay, the, the purpose for this is that it's only in REM sleep yeah. that actual healing in the body gets done. It's mm. not just emotional healing. But we're talking about the micro tears in the muscles. We're looking at the re, uh, rebuilding of or right, of your mental or uh, physical immunity, right? Ensuring that your insulin levels, your hormones are all stabilizing. It all happens then. That's why sleep is so important. And that's the reason why mummies, right? They are not in a good state. <laughs> so coming back to EMDR, we identified oh, this, right? yeah. you know, that left rep movements and yeah. more important and also, but the person who found it, who discovered this, Francine Shapiro, she based, she was uh, doing her, her, I think she was concerned about her thesis or when she was going to the wood, walking in the woods one day and, and she was trying to figure out what's happening. She noticed that her eye movements were going left and right. So, and then afterwards, if she allowed herself to do this, yeah, I know, right? Left, right, oh, she began yeah. to feel a lot better emotionally. So that, um, you know, I think that's how it sort of kick-started the, the movement, or not just yeah. the movement, but at least kick-started the therapeutic, uh, the discovery of the therapeutic technique. Over time, we yeah. realized that it's not just eye movements. We realized that as long as you have bilateral stimulation, meaning a left and a right movement, you will be able to achieve the same results. And we're looking at, you know, the fact that all along, you know, innately, we do have this ability. We we have this urge to, you know, I, I'm feeling down today or I feel terrible. I'm going to go for a walk. You just walk out the door. You know, I feel, I feel really agitated. I feel, I feel really stressed. I'm going for a run and you're off. And, you know, you come back an hour later, one half hours later, and you go, oh, I feel great. I feel so much better. Oh, I'm glad I went for the walk, you know. Oh, you know, I got an idea while I went for a walk. You know, I know how to fix this. Yeah. yeah. So we realize that, yeah, that. That happens for sure. Yeah. Bilateral stimulations basically creates alternative, you know, and the alternatives can be in forms of inspiration, muses, or even a solution to your problem. So if we were to bring this into therapy, that means that we can get the client to see or look beyond yeah. the problem that they are facing. So this technique, going bilateral stimulation, really helps the client to, in a sense, reprocess the trauma, yes. meaning see things differently, right? It's not just, you know, see how you have grown from the trauma, see how you have survived from the trauma and how you've grown stronger. It also helps the clients to learn to desensitize to what they're feeling because of the REM movement, left right movements uh and because of you know a tapping of the left right movements reminds the body yeah you know this is a time to rest it helps to turn on the parasympathetic system shuts off the nervous sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system yeah. mm-hmm. right so it's just all fits in really well this is why people or you know why you hear people saying that trauma survivors need this kind of therapy because they're so sensitive they're, they're hypersensitive they feel a lot and it overwhelms. They think they're in danger all the time. They're just constantly feeling that danger. So this is more of a safe way to kind of do it physically to bring that parasympathetic nervous system back online then. That's right. And, and we also keep in mind that trauma survivors have a lot of imagery issues. The memories very visual. Yeah. I mean, some individ- there are the rare, uh, the small minority that's, you know, they are based, you know, their trauma is based on other sen- uh, senses, right? Very physical, very uh, sound based, but majority are visuals. Yeah. 
And so EMDR works so well, simply because we're training the brain to desensitize or not not be afraid of that image anymore. Right, Right. that's it. Yeah, because it's the fear (laughs) of the fear that ends up causing them the spiral. But if if you can remove a little bit of the fear of the fear, then they have more headspace. Exactly, exactly. And it's many times trauma, it's beneficial. I've always told my clients this, hey, don't be afraid of it. You know, it's it's beneficial. It's meant to protect you, right? Trauma is there to protect you. It's just that we don't know how to manage our emotions. So it can seem, you know, the the, the feelings that come with it is, is what is making us so afraid of it. But there is a purpose to the trauma. And what essentially this means is that, you know, if we learn to desensitize to it, you know, trauma teaches us, it helps us to grow from it. Oh my. Um, and the unfortunate thing, and I'm going to lead this into why EMDR is actually the gold standard and not the mm-hmm. other modalities, uh, meaning all the traditional modalities, right? Because the other traditional modalities does not deal with the hypersensitivity. Yeah. They focus a lot on, you know, just look, just stop thinking. Look, just tell yourself, I am strong. Just, you know, correct your negative thoughts. But that's ah. not how <laughs> Well, and you complex know, trauma is, you can't, oh. you can't treat complex trauma like that though. Oh my goodness. It doesn't I, work. There's a whole new problem in altogether. And even EMDR struggles with complex trauma. That's yeah. how complicated complex trauma is. I'm so glad you brought this up, Sherry, because it is, you know, that's something that I, you know, I, I see all the time. I tell you, uh, it is such an underrated a problem, <laughs> but it is gaining ground. We're starting to appreciate uh, how much it impacts us. And yeah, it, it that, that's where inner child comes in, right? And we, we do yes, and yes. develop over time, you know, to yes. cope with all this uh, newer understanding of the trauma. But yes, does CBT work with trauma? I mean, we do have some trauma-based CBT programs, uh, mindfulness CBT, that can yes. help. Yeah. But in my personal experience, Having worked with so many clients, CBT really works well for those whose trauma is one time. The trauma is related to a situation that you can walk away from completely. 100%. Car accidents is not happening again. You've been, somebody shouted at you on a train, you know, you walk away from that individual. Uh, Maybe you got um, abused at your office, you quit, you leave the country, right? All these techniques, CBT will work because it is uh, a one-time trauma and it is so clear, right, that the problem is environmental. It doesn't, that, you know, unless there are other deeper issues, such as, you know, all other complex trauma issues. But if let's say it's just a very simple trauma, single trauma, and the person has a good upbringing, there's no trauma in his, his, his or her history, CBT and its varied forms it's perfect. It's simple. You can eat, you know, I would recommend clients get a book, self-help. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. But with complex trauma, it impacts all your emotions. It impacts all your relationships. Mm -hmm. It impacts every thought. It impacts the filter with which you see the world. Complex trauma isn't as simple as change that negative thought, you know, and then everything will be fixed. Right. And you said that even with EMDR, because it's developmental, if the trauma is developmental, then the eye, the eye movement or whatever could be in all sorts of positions. Like it's not as simple as one position. Yes. Mm. Um, with, mm. com- with EMDR and complex trauma, what, what happens is that EMDR, I mean, there are successes. It's, 
it's not as fast. I mean, EMDR is mm. also famous for being this quick fix, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. EMDR with two, three sessions, you know, you're sorted. Yeah. And yeah. Yes, I've seen it work against the event trauma, right? So, you know, I got in an accident. I'm really scared about this. Go for EMDR. Wow. Complex trauma is so different because as you work on one layer of the onion, you just keep opening up and more and more layers. Yeah. And because it's complex, you start to do, like you say, right? Relationship issues. You're dealing with values that has been oh. damaged. You're dealing with perspectives that are skewed. You're dealing with parental modeling. We're dealing with basically voices of your parents that are shaping the brain in such an odd way. And lastly, we're also dealing with the coping. And with complex trauma, children develop odd and irrational coping that remains as adults. And it's so hard to get to that. Even if you try to tell the individual, okay, it's, you know, stay with this image, right? Don't be afraid of this image. Stay with this. If, especially if it's a complex trauma and we're dealing with their childhood, they get scared because it's the child within them that goes, well, in the first place, I am scared. You're asking me to do this now. And yeah. I never figured it out. I'm here yeah. to learn and you're throwing me off into the deep end. And here's the word we use uh, when we start to hear in therapy. The therapist inadvertently re-traumatizes. Yes. Them. Yeah. And that's, and that when we do hear that sometimes where, you know, someone says, you know, I ended up working with a counselor or a social worker or a therapist, mm -hmm. and I ended up feeling like feeling more scared instead of mm -hmm. feeling better. And unfortunately, they probably did great work. Like there was probably a lot of great work that happened, you know, mm -hmm. that helped them heal, but then parts of it will re-traumatize them and That's it makes true. the relationship less safe. For yes. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I do always, especially when I work with individuals with trauma, uh, I've always made it a point to check in. I always made it a point to ask permission. Hey, um, we're going to do this today. I'm going to go and I'll spend time explaining. I'll say, hey, this EMDR this is what you do. And, and some of the clients just look so bored <laughs> because you're like, well, I'm here to get treated. Why are, you ex why are you teaching me? But, you know, I want to let listeners know, therapists do this. We explain is to help you to feel safe. We help, we want you to feel in control. We want you to know what is happening. With trauma, you've always felt that you are out of control. You feel lost. You feel confused. And sometimes we might take a bit longer to explain things, but it is necessary to calm your nervous system down to help you realize that, hey, you can be brave. You can try this. It will help. So what an important message is to a lot of parents out there, you know, uh, checking with your kids, boundaries, you know, these this are all what we model in sessions. But in light of the fact that EMDR can be so visual, very intense is the word a lot of my clients use. Hmm. But uh, inner child world is what has been developed as a way to cope with it. Yeah, um, I want to hear more about inner child because I heard this a number of times. Uh, people I know have mentioned that they've worked with you and that you are working with them on inner child and it just surprised them you know, let's just call her Annie, you know, she'll say like, yeah, you know, what is little Annie thinking, right? And so I'm wondering, how would you explain inner child work? And why is that so important to do? Inner child work, or the idea of an inner child is actually personification of our emotions. Yes. It is a way for us as therapists to be able to try and say that, hey, this we want to talk, we want to deal with the irrational part of you. We want to deal with the impulsive part of you. 
But we don't exactly want to say, you know what, let's talk with the irrational part. Of it, you know? it, it's very off-putting. So uh, we talk about the child. You know? it's, a, it's a very nice way to personify what we go through. And it's very apt, actually. Very, yeah. very. And I, I think that in parenting work, you know, this is something that really resonates with parents. Inner child is something that helps us to make sense of our irrational part. We all have it. We all have this dark, nasty side to us, right? If you go all the way to Freudian, it's our id, our id. Our id. <laughs> yes, it just, it's just that. But we have it. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. But here's the yeah. thing. When, that's where trauma comes in, right? We grew up with a generation of parents that say this is bad. And so the inner child, you know, it makes us feel that the inner child is bad. Yeah, it does. Um, and when that happens, right, it drives our emotions. The inner child is also known as the driver of what we do. What we call the, the drive in the front seat of the car. And if we don't parent our inner child, if we don't teach our inner child, we don't learn to soothe, protect, and guide our inner child, well, our inner child runs havoc. And, uh, and that's what we see today. We see individuals with anxiety, we see individuals with depression, right? They, their emotions are in control. They know rationally they should not lose their cool. They know they should not take that thing and throw. They know they should not say those words. But the adult in them is not present. It's the inner child who is in the, charge. And the inner child so, has hijacked like the, the whole brain, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And we know, and the inner child work is something that I, you know, we, we often have, it's inevitable that we have to work on it during trauma especially for complex trauma, simply because, uh, I think as we first uh, spoke about, you know, it comes from childhood, right? So that means the way our mind is shaped and how we understand our emotions have all been shaped from there. And inner child approach gives us a chance to literally reparent it, meaning we go right to how you think, how you feel, change it from there. And here's the beautiful thing. It's not the therapist that does the changing. I really have to keep saying this. It's the client. We're literally telling the client that you are powerful. You're, you are now older. You're so resourceful. You can be the one to make the change, right? And essentially empowering the clients to do so. And that's what inner child work is about. But it can be confusing for some individuals to understand what inner child is like, simply because, you know, it has, it is not common to relate to our emotions that way, first of no. all. Yeah, um, And it is, again, the idea that, you know, the inner child must be bad, right? So if I'm feeling great now, if I'm happy now, that's not the inner child, you know, that's me as an adult. Actually, that's not. <laughs> the inner child is our emotions. It is both happy and sad and that. angry. The adult is the part of us that has no emotions. So essentially the objective part. So yes, the inner child can be good too. It's not always a bad thing. The inner child can be the can be happy. The inner child can be uh, positive, you know. And if, if you feel great, if you're playful, if you're cheeky today, and not necessarily not in a bad way, that's the inner child. I love that because I think that a lot of people who end up really frozen and really depressed is because they were suppressing their negative feelings but if you suppress mm -hmm. your negative feelings you're actually suppressing all of your feelings including the joyous and the positive side so if you are doing inner child work with them you're helping them access all of their emotions yeah. but teaching them how to not have the inner child hijack the whole yeah. <laughs> the whole body and the whole brain yes yeah. yes 
oh, and have helped teaching them to be in collaboration yeah. with the inner child. Beautiful. And I would like to say that in my experience so far, the inner child work, it is most useful and very successful with parents. Yeah. Not so successful with individuals who have not been parents before. Because Yeah, because I think for parents, the idea of a child they can personify that a little bit more. Like it's easier for them to access that. And so this actually is a wonderful segue into my biggest question. This is how I like mm-hmm. to end it with all the experts that I talk with. If you could give one piece of advice to parents who may have experienced trauma of their own, but now they have to raise responsible, resilient adults of the future, what would your advice be to these parents? Because they have trauma, and we don't want to pass on intergenerational trauma, but yeah. with complex trauma, you know, you get triggered by your children. So, I mean, this is a huge question, but what is your advice? Intergenerational trauma is often described as a garden that we inherit, not by choice, and pass on to our next kids, our next generation. And it is the responsibility of every generation or owners of the garden to weed out the weeds and do yeah. the necessary planting. So. In light of this, if, if you're a mom, you're a dad, you've gone through a lot on your own, and you're now you're parenting your kids, it's important you get to know yourself first. Don't try to forge ahead. Don't assume things will fall into place. Know mm. yourself. We recognize that being a mom, being a dad, you are training the next generation. You're, you're training your little boy, your little girl to be the kind of man and woman that you want them to be. And training can only happen if you know what you stand for, what you believe in, what are your limits, what are your strengths, and model to them accordingly. I think that even if moms and dads, even if you have your, you know, you feel like you pretty much got your complex dra- uh, trauma down to a pet, you know, you're, you're, you're in good control, it's good to check in with someone who is trauma-informed. You don't have to have regular therapy sessions, but it's good to check in. Or at least minimally, you know, go go read up about it. Understand more about what this whole thing is. Because being, you know, being a parent will definitely ignite whatever trauma you think you have gotten sorted. (laughs) Because kids do it. Kids can push their buttons. They, you know, and it will come at you from nowhere. Absolutely. And and, I know this is many times, I think, especially for parents who struggle a lot the don't underestimate the the pain that they have gone through although rather you have gone through and but at the same time know that it can be managed you know you can overcome this the it, it is really scary to see that side of you emerge and I've heard so much especially from moms you know who share like you know when I'm at work before I have kids you know I'm calm I'm collected people come to me for advice you know I, I move teams, right? I make, you know, I, I make this amount of sales or I, I do amazing things. I even give other moms advice and it works. But when it comes to my own kids, you know, it's a nightmare and nothing works. Well, in part because the kids are a part of you, you know, they, they also share the struggles you go through. It's just that they have never, they have, do not have the experience that you have had. So you need to really know why it is hard what's blocking you and how to actually overcome that to approach and help them. 
I really feel like I just had a whole therapy session today with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, was- I really enjoyed it. I'm really, I really liked, you know, having this chat. It's really nice to be able to use this opportunity to share about this. I am passionate about this area of work. And I think, and I know you can agree as well, Sherry, because, you know, that's what you, you do too. And it is prevalent. It is, it's everywhere. I don't know. Can we even call it an endemic in it itself? It is. Well, it is. And everything that you said today, for me, I just want people to hear it and realize what you said today, which is it is hard, right? Like it, it's, well, first it's important to do, you know, you're now the, the onus of managing the garden is now yours, right? And it's not easy to do, but that there's hope, and that mm-hmm. you should check in, even if you think you're okay. I actually think that was really good advice because it sneaks up on you. You know, we we think we're so strong. We think we have it. We do it. And then suddenly we crash and burn because we didn't even realize this trigger or this continuous triggering of a trauma that I didn't even know I had. It's so important. So if, if I hope that people listening to this will say, you know, I should probably do a check-in, work with a trauma-informed professional, trauma-trained mm-hmm professional and work on yourself first. I love that advice. Love yeah. it. Yes. I always tell parents you're modeling to your kids. If you know, if you want your kids to know how to regulate themselves, you want them to know how to manage your challenges, you start with yourself. I say the same things. I'm like, you yes. know, I'm like, you know, you do realize that when you behave like this, there's two things happening. You know, yeah. your dysregulation will dysregulate other people. I mean, that's just a given, right? But secondly, you know, your role modeling how to behave and that's when they go, oh. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, so many times parents go and tell me things like, I don't like my kids to swear. You know, do you know my son just said the F word at me, you know? And I'm like, do you say the F word? <laughs> yes, but they don't know what it means. And I'm like, and how do I get them to stop? And I'm like, no. And I also hear from parents who find it very challenging the way their kids behave at school. And so oftentimes they come to people for help because they're actually worried about the behavior of their child. And as you talk with them more, you realize that the dysregulation, of course, more often than not stems from, you know, the parents and they don't realize that that's not what they see. And, you know, I just... I don't know if this is an interesting bit to share with your listeners. Uh, you mentioned about schools, you know, schools need to be trauma-informed. Oh, I know, I, I agree. This is, this is, oh, this is an area completely. Um, we had a very unfortunate incident in Singapore sometime last year where a student murdered another student. And, you know, it was just a regular day in school and, and the student just pretty much picked one kid out. It was not personal. Uh, I think that poor child had a, melt, uh, had a psychotic break of sorts. Just pretty much... Yeah, whack that person out and the schools don't know how to handle it they send in teams they send in counsellors teachers and they're not necessarily trauma informed all they did was give them sheets of CBT you know worksheets and 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 basically say if you can't handle it you know maybe look for someone so you know you can see that the that, that is not how we want to handle trauma and it can be very overwhelming. Very. Uh, and I think I think that, you know, as much as, yes, parents are so important, we, just, we are now understanding so much about how parents matter. And so we're taking care of parents' mental health. 
But I have to say, schools too. The teachers, the people work, working with our children, they need to be equipped. They need to be taken care of, so that our children will be taken care of. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Because you know, you think about how much stress teachers are going through. I mean, especially yeah. over the past two years with COVID as well. But you know, h- how much they have to handle the different abilities of our children, the different personalities of our children. It's a very stressful environment just to be a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. But on top yes. of that, all these children are coming to school, bringing their stresses and bringing their mm-hmm. uh, traumatic experiences. I agree. I agree. There's so many places that need to be more trauma trained and trauma informed. And it's funny because mm-hmm. I feel like now that I see the world, it's hard to unsee it. Like once you see it, it's hard to unsee it because once you're trained and once you really think about it this way, you kind of realize that most of the times people are responding from their trauma selves and you don't have to take any of it personally, really. It's just people are fight, fight, freeze because they got triggered by something and it may not be about me. It might be the color of my shirt. You know, it may be my eyebrow. Like it might be like, it could be anything that can trigger them and they'll have a response, right? So you can have a little more compassion for yourself, but also for others as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's why, you know, you're doing great work, Sherry. I'm so glad oh. that you're you're doing this, you're sharing it out there. You know, we need to get it to everyone, you know, to hear about this, to learn about this. Not everybody will go to the bookstore and pick up a book about trauma. No, it does, no. you know. It's, yeah. Some of them are really hard to read, but Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, but the fact that you know it, you know, what you're doing now and it's, it's everyone listens, you know, and that's what they like to listen on the go. I just appreciate what you do. I know I'm a fan of your work. I've heard from people, you know, who say that they just learned so much from you and you you make their lives better. So I, I right back at you. you. Now. <laughs> um, thank you so much for spending your valuable time with me. I know you're high in demand. I will put down the hashtags in your website for people who may want to work with you. I know yes. that you have wait lists and stuff because you are very much in demand. But I will put <laughs> yeah. that up. I will put that up anyway. And thank you for sharing this. You know, let's continue to do our best to make the world a better place. Let's do that. Thank Thank you you so much for listening to the Sandwich Parenting Podcast. I hope, like me, you've learned something new that will help you along with your parenting journey. If you wish, you can always connect with me at www.sandwichparenting.com.